Good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you here, as once again I have the privilege of standing before you for the preaching of God's Word. It is always such a joy to be able to share the Scriptures with you, and it is indeed a privilege, as the Lord has once again granted us to be gathered together here as we turn our hearts, as we turn our attention to His Word. This morning, as you can see on the screen, we are going to continue with our message series on the book of Psalms. And our psalm for today is the second psalm, is Psalm 2. And I would ask you, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we are going to, to read the verses in Psalm 2 in its entirety. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Let us all read these final verses together. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, once again, the grace that you have given us, O Father, to be before you now as we glorify your name, as we stand here, indeed, always, Lord, so amazed by your grace, by your mercy upon our lives, as we turn our hearts now to your word, as the psalmist says, your word that is settled in heaven. We worship you, we praise you, we pray, Father, that you would minister to our hearts through the power of your everlasting word, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Based on these verses from Psalm 2, this morning I would like to share with you a message with this title, The King is Coming. The King is Coming. There are at least 16 messianic psalms in the Bible. That is, psalms that speak directly about the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And Psalm 2 is the very first of the messianic psalms in the scripture. It is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament, always pointing to the person of Christ, to the person of the Lord Jesus. One thing that you will not see in reading Psalm 2 in the Old Testament is a title. 
is a superscription, as I mentioned to you last month, 116 of the 150 psalms, they come with a superscription telling you the circumstances in which the psalm was written, how the choir director should direct the people in singing the exact tune, the temple, but also would tell you who wrote it. Psalm 2 does not come with that title. So through reading of the psalm, we cannot know who wrote it. However, there was a prayer meeting in the New Testament, in the book of Acts in chapter 4, in which Peter and John were present with the disciples. And when they began to pray, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, they revealed to us who wrote Psalm 2. Because in their prayer, they quoted Psalm 2. And we see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? As you can see in that prayer meeting, in their prayer, as they were speaking their words to the Lord, they revealed to us that the one who wrote Psalm 2 was King David. And it is important for us to know that King David wrote Psalm 2 not only as a musician and songwriter, but David wrote Psalm 2 as a prophet, as a prophet of God. The Bible tells us that David was a prophet in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, and also 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. David was a prophet of God. And it is important for us to keep this in mind as we are going to read through Psalm 2. Because in the immediate context, the king in Psalm 2 refers to David himself. But in a prophetic context, the king in Psalm 2 refers to the greater David. is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And so as we go back to the beginning of Psalm 2 and we read the initial verses, as we know now, written by David... He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed here that David is referring to, remember, as we said, historically, he is speaking of himself. And he is showing surprise as to why the nations of the world, the nations, the countries, the nations surrounding Israel why they would have the arrogance to come marching against him and against Israel. He is perplexed that the nation surrounding Israel would actually have the confidence of coming to wage war against him. And he speaks this way because he knows that the Lord fights for Israel. He knows that the nation surrounding Israel, they knew of the Lord's fame. They knew of the Lord's reputation since the time 400 years earlier when the Lord had parted the, Red, he had, had parted the Red Sea and had given victory to Moses and the people of Israel before the Egyptians. Ever since, the world of that time knew how the Lord fought for Israel, his covenant nation, his chosen nation. The Lord was their protector. The Lord was their defender. The Lord was their warrior and the Lord would fight for them. And David is saying, do you want to come fight against me? Because know this, as he says in first place, before you come against me as the Lord's anointed, you are coming against the Lord first. As we see many a times in the Old Testament, the Lord would protect Israel. As we see, for example, in Joshua chapter 10, 
All the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. But the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Can you imagine? The Lord would fight for Israel in such a way that here, just in this one example, the Lord would make a hailstorm coming from heaven as guided missiles. Because notice this, the hailstones would hit just the heads of the enemies, but none of the Israelites. In such a way that more died from the hailstones than those whom the Israelites actually killed by their own swords. David is saying, are you sure you want to come fight against me? Are you sure you want this? Are you sure you want to fight against the Lord of Israel? But those nations, despite the fact that they knew why, they, they knew that the Lord would fight for Israel, they still wanted to fight against Israel. David and Israel, and they tell him why. As we see in verse 3, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They were saying, yes, we know that the Lord is on your side, but it's still, we, we still want to come and fight you because we no longer want Israel's fetters on us. We no longer want Israel's cords on us. What does that mean? Fetters and cords had to do with instruments that farmers would use on farm animals. When a farmer wanted to control the oxen, he would place a yoke over their necks. That giant bar, the heavy bar that the farmer would use to control the animals. But how would the farmer allow that yoke to stay secure in place? He would put fetters connected to the yoke. Fetters would be that U-shaped bends that you see around the animal's neck to keep the yoke in place. And the cords would be the rope that you see in between the fetters that would allow the farmer to rein in the oxen and to control where the animal would go. So fetters and cords were instruments of bondage. Fetters and cords represented what would place the yoke and would secure it in place, represented instruments of slavery. The surrounding nations were telling Israel, despite the fact that we know that the Lord would fight for you, we still want to come and fight you because we no longer want to be your slaves. We no longer want your fetters and your cords on us. You see, when Israel was conquering the promised land, the people of Israel made some of those nations that were already abiding in Canaan, the promised land. The people of Israel made some of those nations their slaves. The Bible tells us in Joshua 17, but the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. When the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. They made them their slaves. But they did not drive them out completely. They forced them to be their slaves. But this was not what God had instructed Israel to do. They were not supposed to make those nations to turn them into their slaves. To turn them into their slaves was a costly mistake. 
What the Lord had told Israel to do is as they were conquering the promised land, they were to destroy completely all the inhabitants of the land. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 20 when the Bible says, In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. God told them not to make the nations, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, into slaves. What God told them to do is exterminate them completely. And in case anyone would think that there was too much of a drastic command that God had given them, the Lord explained to them as to why they should do so. Because if they were to allow for those nations to remain around them, if they were to commingle with them, the other nations would begin teaching Israel their detestable things. And they would sin against the Lord their God. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened. Israel compromised and continued to live with those nations, even though they turned them into their slaves, but they were living with them. And rather sooner than later, they began to worship false gods. They began to create statues of silver and gold. And worse yet, they began even to sacrifice their own children to demons. As the Bible says in Psalm 106, verse 34 through 39, Israel sinned before God because of their disobedience. The Lord told them to eliminate those nations completely, but Israel did not follow the command of the Lord. And the Lord himself rebuked Israel for their disobedience. The Bible tells us in Judges chapter 2, Now the angel of the Lord came up. And he said, as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides. The Lord had told Joshua and the people of Israel, be strong, be bold. Be courageous, for I, the Lord, I am with you. And they, and they were given the power and the promise of God to destroy the inhabitants of the land so that they could take possession of the entire area that the Lord had promised them, that the Lord had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They disobeyed and allowed those nations to remain. And the Lord said, because you have done so, those nations will now be thorns in your sides. And those nations remain as thorns in Israel's sides to this day. As Palestinians were the Philistines in the Bible and many other countries in the Middle East who continue to wage war against Israel. Many countries and political powers like Hezbollah who continue to fight against Israel. If only Israel had eliminated those nations when they had a chance, when the Lord had given them the command to do so, Israel would be in a much different circumstance today. But they disobeyed, and they are still reaping the fruit today. And even 400 years after, Joshua and the tribes of Israel allowed those nations to remain. Now, David and Israel, they are reaping the fruits of their ancestors' disobedience. As we see, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. 
if only they had obeyed. But now, despite David's perplexity as to how those nations were still wanting to come against Israel, they no longer wanted to be their, their slaves. They were not even supposed to exist in the first place. But now they were saying, we no longer want to be your slaves. And so now you can understand how these first verses in Psalm 2, they historically, they apply to the enemies of God and the enemies of David. But as we are going to see from this point on, we are going to also see how these verses also apply not only to the enemies of God and David in the Old Testament, but how they apply to the enemies of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, even in our days. Notice that David says in Psalm 2 that the nations were coming together against the Lord and against his anointed. In that prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4, when Peter, John, and the disciples are quoting Psalm 2, notice what they say. Together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Is that a biblical discrepancy? In the Old Testament, we read that the words of David were, they came together against the Lord and his anointed. When they are quoting Psalm 2 here, they say they came against the Lord and against his Christ. Is that an error? No. In the Old Testament, the anointed of the Lord was King David. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel according to the commandment of the Lord as king over Israel. But that word anointed that we read in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, do you know what that word anointed is in the original Hebrew? Is the word that we call Messiah. And do you know how you say Messiah in Greek in the, in the language of the New Testament? Messiah in New Testament language is Christos, is Christ. So now you see the messianic application of Psalm 2, how historically it applied to God and David as the, as the Lord's anointed. But in the New Testament, it applies to God and the Lord Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the Christos, as Christ. In the Old Testament, the enemies of God and of Israel wanted to march against them because they no longer wanted to remain their slaves. In the New Testament, in the prophetic fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm, the Bible is telling us that the enemies of God here were not the nations of the Old Testament, but the enemies of God here who are coming against the Lord and against Christ were Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They all became responsible for the Lord's crucifixion. They all raised themselves as enemies of God and enemies of Christ in that they crucified the Son of God. But as it says, they did all of that not because their will was more potent than the will of God. The Lord allowed all of that to happen, to do whatever, as it says there, God allowed that to happen so that whatever he had already mandated to occur according to his hand and according to his purpose. And so now you understand why here they say against the Lord and against his Christ. In the Old Testament, historically speaking, we are seeing the enemies of God and the enemies of David. But now, prophetically speaking, here in the New Testament, we are seeing the enemies of God and the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I must tell you that the enemy spirit described in these verses continues to this day. As the world was against God in the Old Testament, as the world was against Christ in the New Testament, the world continued to raise wars and wage wars against God and the Lord Jesus Christ even in our days. The Bible tells us, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The psalm is telling us that not only nations and peoples would be against the Lord and against his Christ, but the Bible says that also kings and rulers. What does that mean? It means that men in general... Peoples in general, represented by the nations and peoples, would come against the Lord. But also there will be a concerted effort on the part of the governments of the entire world, represented by the kings and rulers. Throughout history, this psalm prophetically reveals to us that there will always be men and governments against God and against Christ. Men and governments of the entire world, even government in this country, even in this country, the government has openly launched attacks against God. From the legalization of abortion in 1973 to the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2015, the political powers have ramped up their efforts to create a society fully against Christian values. And we are living in days that are so much morally upside down that if you as a Christian raise your voice to express your Christian biblical point of view, you are the hater these days. You are the intolerant. You are the bigot. It's an upside down world out there. As I told you before, we are living in the days of Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Where good is called evil and evil is being called good. What is God to do? With all these attacks from men and governments against him, do you think God is concerned? I hear of Christians saying, I'm, I am concerned about the direction of America. How is the United States of America moving so rapidly into a direction that is completely anti-Christian? What is going to happen to my children? What is going to happen to my grandchildren? What is going to happen to the church? Do you think God is concerned about that? You think God in heaven is saying, ooh, they signed a powerful executive order. Ooh, they have a powerful Congress down there. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think that God in heaven has one ounce of concern. Because this psalm tells us this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. We have nothing to fear, folks. For the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and our lives are in his hands. This psalm, as many other psalms, speak of the sovereignty of God. Your life is in the Lord's hands. Fear no more because your life is in God's hands. Never mind what men and governments can do. Our lives belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing can touch us unless the Lord would permit. Our lives are under the control of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Did you know that there are three verses in the Bible where God laughs? There are only three verses in the entire Bible where God laughs. And did you know that there are all three? All three are in this book of the Psalms. We see it in Psalm 59, verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Why is God laughing? We see God laughing again in our psalm, Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why is the Lord laughing? I'll tell you why. In the third verse, in the third passage where we see him laughing, in Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13, it says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. Why? For he sees his day is coming. The Lord mocks at all the attempts from men and governments against him because he sees that the day of the wicked is coming. He sees that his day of judgment upon the wicked is coming. No matter what men and governments will attempt to do against the Lord and his kingdom, God will always have the last word. He says, their day is coming. In the Bible, do you know what that is called? That is called the day of the Lord. Now, do you know what is the day of the Lord? What exactly is the day of the Lord? I'll tell you that the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. But it is a period of time that will last for centuries. Let me show you. We know that the Lord Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago. And on the third day, as we sang this morning, the grave could not keep him. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Fifty days after his resurrection came the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Lord formed the church on earth. That is in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. When the Lord founded the church here on earth. Ever since the Lord has established the church on this earth, what is the single event that you and I as Christians are waiting for? We are waiting for the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the moment when there will be a snatching away of saints, a snatching away of all of us believers, Christians, those of us who have been bought and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, confessing him as our Savior, knowing that we have been forgiven of all of our sins. The Bible says that the moment will come when the Lord will stop in the air in the clouds and we will be taken up to be with him forevermore. Jesus made that promise to you and me in John chapter 14, verse 3. If you'd like to read more about the rapture, you can read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. After the rapture of the church, when Christ has removed the church from this earth, the day of the Lord will begin. The day of the Lord ushers in the judgments of God upon the earth. After the rapture, we as believers, as Christians, we will be in heaven. And here on earth, there will be the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation. When the day of the Lord begins. And during that seven-year tribulation, the judgments of God will become even more and more intense. 
During the very last half, during the last three and a half years of that period, the wrath and the fury of God will be poured upon mankind. That is the beginning of the day of the Lord. And Psalm 2 speaks to us about this, this feature of the day of the Lord. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 5 is in the tribulation period. When the wrath of God will be poured upon this earth. Isaiah tells us, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and f with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. There are many prophets in the Old Testament that speak of that period of judgment described as the day of the Lord. The prophet Joel, the prophet Zechariah, but Isaiah is one of them, and there are many other verses that I could give you about the day of the Lord. And if you'd like to know more about the specific features of the day of the Lord in the great tribulation, you can read in the book of Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18. What will happen after the tribulation here on earth? What would happen at the end of those seven years? There is one glorious event that you and I will also participate in. Do you know what would happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation? This would happen. It will be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this time, when the Lord comes to earth a second time, he will not come as the Lamb of God, but he will come as the Lion of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice that the second coming of Christ is not the same as the rapture. In the rapture, the Lord will not come to earth. We will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. In the second coming of Christ, Jesus will return to the earth, to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And he will return to judge. And he will return to install his millennial kingdom here on this earth. He will return to establish his 1,000 king, 1, year kingdom here on earth that we call the millennium. A literal, physical presence of Christ on earth, not symbolically. Many say the millennial is just a symbol of Christ reigning in our hearts. No. All of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally. Why should we expect that the prophecies about the millennium would be fulfilled symbolically? It will be a, it will be a true, literal, physical reign of Christ from Jerusalem, from here on this earth. Christ will reign for 1,000 years. And our psalm speaks of that. The Bible says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the voice of the Father, speaking of when his son will be installed as king during the millennium. It is prophesied and soon will be fulfilled. We know that nothing will be left unfulfilled according to the promises of God. Everything will be fulfilled. When the Lord comes in his second coming to earth, he will install his 1,000-year millennial kingdom here on this earth. And what would happen after the millennium? What would happen at the end of the 1,000 period of Christ reigning here on earth? This will happen. It will be the final judgment. 
also called the judgment of the great white throne. At the end of the millennium, Christ will bring before him all the souls of all unbelievers of all time. All those who died without Christ, without salvation, they will be brought before the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those souls will be before him. And we see that described in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. The Bible tells us that at that moment, the books will be opened, where every sin and every word sinful has been recorded and will be brought out as condemnation to those souls who have already died without Christ. But also there will be one book that will also be open. It will be the book of life. And because their names will not be written in the book of life, the Bible tells us they will all be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And they will experience at that moment the second death. That is in Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. When their souls will receive a new existence, they will receive a new body fit for eternity to suffer eternally without ceasing in hell. That will be the product of the final judgment. And so what is the answer to our question? What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is this. The day of the Lord is the period of time that begins immediately after the rapture, lasts through the tribulation, lasts through the 1,000 years of the millennium, and culminates with the final judgment, the judgment of the great white throne. That is the day of the Lord. Now you can understand the words of the Apostle Peter when he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that for the Lord we should never forget this, that for the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and one thousand years is just like one day. This is the day of the Lord, when his judgments will be poured out on this earth. By the way, do not confuse the day of the Lord with the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the rapture. The day of Christ is the rapture of the church when we will be taken up to be with him. Similarly, the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day, but it is a period of long centuries. Likewise, the day of Christ is not a 24-hour day either, but you will be over in a minute. It will be over in a second. In the twinkling of an eye, in one-eighth of a second, we will be taken up to be with the Lord forevermore. You can read about the day of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So the day of the Lord will begin immediately after the day of Christ, after the rapture, and it will last through the end of the millennium, to the end of the millennium, culminating with the final judgment. That is the day of the Lord. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Those prophetic events of these end times, these eschatological events of the end times, have all been prophesied in Psalm 2 in the exact order that they will happen. Now men and governments are raising their heads in attacks against God and Christ. The Lord mocks at all their attempts because he knows that soon he will remove his church from the earth when we will see Christ face to face. And after the rapture, the day of the Lord will begin when the tribulation will be installed here on this earth. And at the end of the tribulation, the Lord will return to earth in his second coming. And there, the Lord will be installed as king for 1,000 years, culminating with the final judgment. We have understood Psalm, Psalm 2 until these verses, but now I want you to pay attention to this. 
as we begin verse 7, the next three verses in Psalm 2 give us an awesome, amazing privilege. The next three verses in Psalm 2 give us the privilege to learn of a dialogue within the Trinity. This is truly like walking on holy ground, where you and I will be given the privilege of taking a peek behind the curtain into eternity past to see and to hear the words of the Father and the words of the Son. Beginning in verse 7, the Bible says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This, these are the words of the Son. These are the words of Jesus. When he heard the decree, when he heard the proclamation from the Father, because as it says here, I heard, I'll surely, I'll surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. That word Lord you see in this verse is the word Yahweh, God's holy name. This, these are the words that the Father spoke to the Son. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And we see that also in the book of Hebrews, confirming that the prophecy is indeed Open the curtain for us to see and understand the dialogue within the Trinity. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 5 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The writer to the Hebrews says, Christ did not glorify himself, but the one who glorified him was the one, was the father who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Do not misunderstand this verse in Psalm 2. Do not misunderstand what the Bible is telling us. Jesus was not a created being. Jesus is God. And he has always been God from eternity to eternity. Jesus is the same in essence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What this verse is showing us here is the moment in eternity past, as we have the privilege to see, the moment in eternity past when the Son accepted the Father's plan of salvation for our salvation when the son accepted the father's plan of salvation that would call for him to be born as a human being in his incarnation this is telling us of the moment when Christ would accept to leave eternity to step down from eternity and enter into time in a human body as the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore, when Jesus, when he comes into the world, he says, Suffer, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. These are the words of Christ when he accepted the Father's plan for our salvation. When he said, I will accept my body. I will accept, Father, your plan for my incarnation. But it is important for us to also understand this, something that the Apostle Paul brings it out. When the Apostle Paul also quotes Psalm 2. In the book of Acts, in chapter 13, he says this, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle is telling us that the words in Psalm 2 verse 7 not only included 
the birth of Christ for our salvation not only included the birth of Christ in his incarnation, but it also included the promise that he would be resurrected. That he would be risen from the dead. Because if God had only created the plan of salvation in which Christ would be born and that he would also die for our sins without being risen from the dead, then the plan of salvation would have been defeated and you and I would still be in our sins. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16 and 17. But thank God that in the promise of Psalm 2, verse 7, when the Bible says that the Father was giving the Son a body in his incarnation, in his words about the son's birth and death for our salvation, always also included the infallible guarantee of his resurrection. He will be risen from the dead. He will be born. He will die. But death would not hold him. As the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. As we sing on the song, death could not hold him, the veil torn before him, he silenced the boast of sin and grave. It was impossible for death to keep him. And because the son fulfilled the father's plan for salvation in his birth, death, and resurrection, the Father honored the Son. He lifted up the name of the Son above all names. And he says to the Son in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You may have heard this verse being quoted many times as referring to missions. As if God is speaking to you and me, to ask him for the nations to be saved through missionary work. But this verse has absolutely nothing to do with missions. Remember, this is still a conversation. This is still a dialogue between father and son. The father is telling the son because he has fulfilled the plan of salvation. At the son's asking, the father would give him all the glory and all dominion and all the honor. He would be the one who will be over all the nations as his inheritance. And to the very ends of the earth, everything would be his dominion. Everything would be his possession. Hebrews confirms that. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He did receive all the nations as his inheritance. And he did receive the very ends of the earth as his possession. And the father continued to honor the son for having completed his plan of salvation. In Psalm 2 verse 9, we see, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The father is appointing the son to exercise judgment on his behalf. The father has honored the son by giving him the authority and the right to exercise judgment over all the world. The Bible tells us in John chapter 5, for not even the father judges anyone, Jesus says, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So many religions profess to 
honor the father, yet they disrespect the son. That is the sign of a satanic religion. Any religion that denigrates the son, that calls him an, an angel, an archangel, a created being, simply a man, simply a prophet, it is satanic, not of God. True religion will always honor the father as much as it honors the son. He is worthy to receive all praise and all glory. Because the Father has given him, as proof that he has received all glory, the Father has given him all judgment, including the judgment of the nations. When will this happen? When will the Lord exercise judgment even upon the nations? Revelation chapter 19 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In his righteousness he judges and wages war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. When will the Lord rule the nations with a rod of iron? When he will break them as he, as he would break earthenware? When will that happen? It will happen here, at the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ before the millennium, he will exercise his judgment of the nations. Remember, this is still part of the day of the Lord. The final judgment is the judgment of those who are already dead. Their souls will be before the Lord, before being thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment of the nations is the judgment of those who are still alive. The nations who will appear before the Lord for their judgment. And I want you to understand this. You and I as believers, we would have already gone up to be with the Lord during the rapture. And at that moment, we would have received our glorified bodies. So when the Lord comes a second time to earth, we will be returning with Christ in our glorified bodies. That is Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. And the Bible gives us an incredible promise. The Lord says that at that moment in our glorified bodies, as we return with Christ for the second coming, we will be participating in the judgment of the nations with Christ. It is a promise that he has made to you and to me in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. And at that moment, when the Lord will be judging the nations, this judgment is also called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The judgment of the sheep and the goats, as the Lord speaks of it in Matthew chapter 25, where he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. During this time, the Lord will judge all the nations who have survived the tribulation. Every individual who has survived the tribulation will be before Christ in the, the moment of judgment. The judgment of the sheep and the goats. And how will the Lord exercise his judgment upon the nations to determine who is a sheep and who is a goat? The Lord will exercise that judgment according to how they treated the people of Israel during the tribulation according to how they treated the Jews during the tribulation. And you ask, where is that in the Bible? Here in Matthew chapter 25, if you begin reading in verse 35, the Lord will say, On that day I will 
tell them. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they will ask the Lord, when did we see you hungry and gave you something to eat? When did we see you thirsty and gave you something to drink? And he will say in Matthew 25 verse 40, To the extent that you did any of these things to one of these brothers of mine, the Jews, the Israelites. To the extent that you did these things to any of these brothers of mine, you have done it unto me. These sheep and the goats have nothing to do with the church. We have already gone up to be with the Lord in the rapture. And we are coming back with him in the second coming. We are not the ones being judged here. These are for those who survive the tribulation. The sheep are those who will be saved during the tribulation. The goats are those who will not believe the Lord and who remain unsaved during the tribulation. Both the sheep and the goats, they somehow will survive the great tribulation, but the sheep will believe in the name of the Lord and be saved and treat the Jews well. And the goats, they will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, and they will also mistreat the Jews. That will be the judgment of the nations. At that moment, the sheep, those who will be justified by the Lord and saved by him, they will be the only ones entering the millennial kingdom of Christ in their physical bodies. Everyone else will be already in their glorified bodies. The goats, they will go to eternal condemnation and they will die on the spot. They will not enter the millennial kingdom. They will die at the moment of the judgment. And everyone else who is saved, we have received our glorified bodies. The saints of the Old Testament would have already received their glorified bodies when Jesus Christ comes back comes back for the second time. That is Daniel, that is Isaiah, that is Samuel, that is David. They all receive their glorified bodies when Jesus Christ returns. And also the saints of the tribulation, those who did not believe in the Lord before the rapture, but they were saved during the great tribulation and they died on the hands of the Antichrist or for any other reason. They will also receive their glorified bodies when Jesus Christ returns a second time. So the only ones entering in their physical bodies at the millennial kingdom of Christ will be the sheep. That is how we see that children will be created and they will be able to procreate during the millennial kingdom of Christ. Everybody else will be in their glorified bodies. The Bible tells us in Zechariah 14, 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, the sheep. All those who are left of the nations who believe in the Lord for salvation and were so justified by Christ. Not because of the treatment that they gave the Jews. That was just the evidence. That was just the fruit. But they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period for their salvation. There are many other verses that I could give you about the nations, about the sheep going into the millennium. Like Zechariah chapter 2 verse 11, Zechariah chapter 8 verse 21 and 23, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 and many others. But our time is basically over and I still have three verses to go cover with you. So let us go to the end of Psalm 2 where David says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. David as a prophet of God anticipating what was to come as well. He is saying... Now, worship the Lord. This is a universal call to salvation. 
This is a universal call to salvation, even in the Old Testament. People ask, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved by the law? Were they saved by observing the law? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that no one could be saved by observing the law because no one could demonstrate perfect obedience to the commandments of the law. How were they saved in the Old Testament? The same way that we are saved today, by faith in God alone. We are saved by faith in what Christ has done for us in the past. They are saved by faith. They were saved by faith in what Christ would do for them in the future. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says this, the righteous shall live by faith. They were saved by faith alone. Even Abraham, he was saved by faith, not by observing the law. The law wasn't given until 400 years after Abraham was alive. The Lord Jesus speaks of Abraham in that way. In John chapter 8 verse 56 where he says, Abraham, he saw my day and he rejoiced and he was glad when he saw it. By faith he was justified. Likewise, if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, if anyone here, if you do not have Christ as your Savior, if you are living a life of sin without God, I'll tell you, now is the time, as David says, now therefore, as 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, now is the day of salvation, now is the acceptable time. Come to Christ, because the Bible tells us in John chapter 3 that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. If anyone is condemned by him at the end, it is because they chose to reject him. Don't make that decision, but decide to come to him, to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as your Savior, and come to him. He will have repentance, he will have forgiveness, he will have faith, he will have a new life for you. And our final verse says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That expression, do homage to the son, literally says, kiss the son as a sign of reverence and honor. This is the time of salvation. The son will come one day as the judge of the, as the, judge of the earth, as the father has honored him in that way, given to him all the judgment. You do not want to appear before the Lord as your judge. You want to come to him as your savior. So that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. On the contrary, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That expression take refuge originally simply means to put their trust in him. Psalm 96, 13 says, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The king is coming. Are you ready? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so wonderful, it is so great that we could go into your word and be edified by the eternal truths of your sacred scriptures. We praise you, Father. We glorify your name. May your blessings be with each and every one of us here as I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to those who perhaps did not know you and had not repented of their sins and did not have and had not confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that you bless us now 
that you give us of your grace, that our lives will be centered upon your word, and that we would think each and every day and each and every moment according to the truths of your holy scriptures. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name.